0: I very much appreciate the privilege of being here again, appreciate the kind invitation of the assembly, and also the privilege of sharing with our brethren, my first time to be here in this very comfortable and commodious auditorium, and we look to the Lord for further blessing upon his word and upon the ministry that we have just heard. I'd like to read two short portions from the book of Psalms. Initially from Psalm 35. Psalm number 35. Just one text here. Verse 9 of Psalm 35. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice. In his salvation. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. And a text from Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And our verse here will be 100. And sixty-two, Psalm one hundred and nineteen, and verse one hundred and sixty-two. I rejoice at thy word, as one that findeth great spoil. Rejoice at thy word, as one that findeth great spoil. Now that's all we read. Other passages I'll refer to, but that will be sufficient for. Our reading, we trust with the Lord's blessing. If I mention the name Robert Robinson, well, you may know quite a number that carry that name. But I'm thinking of a very specific Robert Robertson in my little diary of significant dates in Christian history. Robert Robinson was born on this date, 27 September 1735. He lived an interesting life, died when he was 54, became quite a useful servant of Christ, preacher of the gospel. He wrote a few hymns, and the hymn that you will have often heard about and is often quoted and referred to, the story is often told, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of Loudest praise, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, take my heart and take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Now, the story goes that after Robinson wrote that hymn, he was converted under the preaching of the famous evangelist George Whitfield. As a young man in his late teens, he wrote that hymn when he was approximately 22 years of age, as I say, became a fruitful preacher of the gospel. He got involved in various things, and maybe false doctrines, had one or two ups and downs in life. And the story is told that on one occasion when he was traveling on a stagecoach, there was a lady beside him, and she was singing the hymn, which I've just quoted. And he could burn it no longer, and he spoke to her about this hymn, and she conversed with him. And he confessed to the lady, he said, Lady, I'm the man that wrote that hymn. And he said, I would give a thousand worlds if I could recapture the joy in Christ which I had when I wrote that hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart. Well, it isn't easy. It isn't easy keeping your focus. It isn't easy maintaining your warmth. It isn't easy in Christian life just retaining that sense of joy. We all become cold and and distant. And our vision becomes blurred and our steps become faltering. Now, what I want to try and speak about just a little bit in this session of the conference, I want to think about two great sources of spiritual joy for the child of God. On the one hand, we have the Savior. And on the other hand, we have the Scripture. We have read two expressions here from the book of Psalms. My soul shall rejoice in the Lord. Then we have read another expression, I rejoice in thy word. A joy in the Lord, on the one hand, and a joy in his word, on the other hand. And really, when everything is analyzed, these are not two distinct joys. Because as I appreciate the word, I will be invited into a deeper enjoyment of the Lord. I don't read the Word as an end in itself. I read the Word for a developing and a deepening of my relationship with the Lord. And I'm particularly interested just now to think about a number of parallels, similarities, close associations between the Savior and the Scriptures. Of course, the one that is most obvious and the one that is most frequently alluded to, both are described as the Word of God. As far as the Lord Jesus is concerned, we are very, very familiar with those three great texts of New Testament Scripture that describe Him that way. In the beginning was the Word, in John chapter 1. When we go to 1 John chapter 1, concerning the Word of life, When we go to Revelation chapter 19, the Word of God is His name. So in the writings of John, on three occasions, the Lord Jesus is very specifically designated the Word of God, the everlasting Logos, the full expression of the mind of God. Just as my Word reveals my inner thought, the Lord Jesus embodies in himself the fullness of divine revelation. That was something that puzzled the ancient Greeks. They were concerned in origins. How did the universe come to be? How did the universe hold together? What was the secret of its coherence And its consistency. And those ancient philosophers, as they delved and dug into the depths of human reason, they came up to the conclusion that there was something called the Logos. And the Logos was a principle. And that principle was the energizing principle of the universe. It was almost undefinable. It was just that very significant thing, the Logos. When, of course, the Apostle John began to write about it. And when the whole thing was reconsidered in the context of Christian doctrine, we discover that the Logos is not a thing. The Logos is a person. And it's by that person. Not something cold. Not something abstract. But something that has been concretized in one glorious person who enjoys everlasting intimacy and equality with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. And what to the Greeks was so mysterious... To the simple evangelist that leaned upon the bosom of the Savior and heard the heartbeat of the incarnate Son of God. It was warm. It was close. It was personal. In the Gospel, according to John, of course, the Word, that's the Lord Jesus in His person, who He is in Himself. In the first epistle of John, the Word, it's not so much His person, it's His provision. He's the Word of life. Through that Word, we have now become the possessors of this everlasting life. When we move to the book of Revelation, it's not so much His person or His provision. It's His mighty power. He is the Word of God. And when He comes again as the rider upon the white horse, as the claimant of universal victory, Those marshaled enemies of God will there be gathered and He will dispense and disperse them all because as the Word of God He claims and wields omnipotence. And we appreciate the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Let us again, as we've already been doing, reveling in His humility, let us appreciate and stand in awe before the wonder of his everlasting and essential deity, let us stand beside Josiah Condor when he wrote those majestic words: "Thou art the everlasting word, the father's only son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one if some time I think I, I think it 's it is said, some of these stories, we're not sure about them all. It is said that Mr. Darby is supposed to have mentioned on one occasion that he would give everything that he had if he could have written that one single hymn. He himself produced some amazing hymns. But there was something about that hymn of Josiah Condor that touched his heart. Thou art the everlasting word. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the concept and the feeling and the conviction didn't flow into all of Darby's followers. Some of his followers, Mr. Taylor and his descendants, they have a hymn book and they took Mr. Condor's hymn and they have changed it. Thou art the blessed incarnate word. And I begin to smell a hint of heresy. Oh, yes, it's true that He is the blessed incarnate Word. But while some of that persuasion believe in the existence of His person everlastingly, they do not believe in relationships before the incarnation. We can gladly sing... Thou art the everlasting Word. True image of the infinite whose essence is concealed. Brightness of uncreated light. The heart of God revealed. We appreciate the resplendent glory of essential deity on its full display in the Logos. The Word who is eternal and the Word who became flesh for our salvation. But in this book, there's also the Word of God. Because in this book, we also have divine revelation. So that for our pilgrim pathway through this world, with all its diversions, with all its deviations, with all its problems, with all its pitfalls, we can move with a steady step if we are guided on the one hand by the Savior, on the other hand by the Scriptures. Because in these two... We have the complementary fullness of divine revelation. There's a completeness in Christ. There's a fullness in Christ. Thank God there is a completeness in this volume that lies before me. And I say especially to young believers, you just appreciate the full articulation and the absolute articulation of the mind of God in the text of Holy Scripture. Of course, that sets, um, that sets Christianity aside from Islam. And I speak respectfully, if you were to speak to, to an Orthodox Muslim, and uh, he too would say, we have the Word of God. And of course, he will not be referring to this book, the Bible. He will be referring to the Quran. And uh, he believes that the Quran was inscribed on tablets that are retained in heaven, never seen by human eye. At least many Muslims do. The contents of those invisible tablets were dictated word by word by the angel Gabriel, inscribed in Arabic, which cannot be translated. Those Arabic words are sacrosanct and they should not be translated. They are translated, but they do not have any official Mohammedan recognition in another language. The Bible is a book with greater flexibility. It can be translated into languages across the islands of the sea. And the mind of God can still be conveyed. You see, as far as a Muslim is concerned, the Word of God is a book. But its 112 surahs, the Word of God is a book. Full stop, stiff, rigid, legalistic, cold. The Word of God is a book. But of course Christianity moves into another sphere altogether. Because the Word of God to us is not only a book... The Word of God, as I have been saying, is also a person. And there's a warmth. There's a closeness. There's the possibility of intelligent and intimate communion. There's something living. There's something vibrant that through this book, we enjoy communion with a person. And the Savior and the Scriptures, in their absoluteness, they embody the totality of divine revelation. May God help us to rejoice in the Savior just as much as and when we rejoice in the Scriptures. Let me me say a little bit about the arrival of the Savior and the arrival of the Scriptures into the sphere of human experience. They both arrived here, by a very, very remarkable divine operation which is unparalleled in any other part of the universe. And each operation that I'm thinking about now, in that operation, a very special and significant part was played by the gracious Holy Spirit. How did the Lord Jesus, how did the everlasting Word arrive here into history and among humanity and become an audible Tangible, visible reality. Well, the great operation was via incarnation. How did the Holy Scriptures get from the mind and the heart of God to the hand of man? How did the very Calligraphy of the everlasting counsels arrive upon earth written on parchment and in pen and ink. In that second operation, it wasn't incarnation, but an equally marvelous operation. It's called inspiration. And in both incarnation and inspiration, there was a combining of the human and the divine. The means of the incarnation, as we all know, this morning, was the virgin birth. You remember that angelic announcement. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born shall be called the Son of God. And in those months preceding the birth of the Lord Jesus there was the overshadowing, superintending agency of the Holy Spirit. And when that infant was led by his mother in the manger, he was absolutely pure and holy, just as pure in the manger as he had been upon the everlasting throne. And the great wonder, of incarnation had taken place. There was the real humanity of the Lord Jesus. There was the human instrument. There was the operation of the Holy Spirit by a mysterious combination that is beyond scientific analysis. And the wonderful result of it all is this, that the Savior arrived here into this world. What about the Holy Scriptures? Well, of course, the great doctrine of inspiration The Bible was not dictated to men by an angel. The men who wrote the Bible were not dictaphones. Neither were they Microsoft word processors. But the various authors over the span of the centuries, each one of those authors was taken up, superintended, carried along, supported, supervised, by a marvelous operation of the Holy Spirit. Just as Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in the bringing in of the Savior, men chosen by God were overshadowed, superintended. Their personality was not violated. They were in no way submerged under, under the canopy of the Holy Spirit so that you could take the writings of Peter and you can see they differ. They differ in their style. In their vocabulary, in their grammar, in their syntax, they differ from the writings of Paul. You take the prophecy of Jeremiah. It seems to be a ponderous style. Take the graphic, vivid, poetic style of Isaiah. Every different penman was allowed his own personality, and it shines through, but yet everything was guided, directed, overruled by the Holy What they put on the page was exactly as the Lord intended it to be. Every tense, every word, every syllable, the order of the words, the quantity of the narrative, the style, the genre, everything was there. So that, so that, by this marvelous process that we speak of as incarnation and virgin birth, and the great process of inspiration and the arrival of the scriptures into we are left we are left with a savior who is absolutely sinless perfect and we are left with a book that is absolutely flawless to those two words one of them a bible word the other word accurate and to those two words Incarnation and inspiration. I'm now putting another two words. In incarnation, we believe in the impeccability of the Lord Jesus. Absolutely beyond spot, beyond a trace of sin, essentially and eternally pure and holy. We revel in that today. We think about our own flaws and failures and we rejoice. We rejoice in all the fullness and the perfection that reside in Christ. But as far as the scriptures are concerned, we don't speak about the impeccability of scripture so much. We speak about the infallibility of scripture. So that this book... I know, I know, I know. I've heard it. I've heard it all as you have heard it. Someone tell us, well, you know the Bible. The Bible is is a good book. It's a useful book. It's a very, very proper book. And Christians should read it. In matters of faith and doctrine and theology, it's very reliable. And it should be observed. And it should be studied. And it should be... But in matters of science, they weren't very scientific, those men that lived back in those days. In matters of history... No, 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 you wouldn't. In matters of mathematics, you wouldn't want to depend upon the Bible for things like that. When it's faith and theology and belief, it's okay. But for those other more technical subjects, well, the Bible just takes a broad sweep of things and it might not exactly hit the mark. I cannot accept that. If this book is faulty in history, it can also be faulty in theology. If it's faulty in matters of science, it can also be faulty in matters of faith. I do not know. I know it's a little old-fashioned nowadays. But dear believers, this is a Bible, a weekend, a Bible conference, when the book of God will be opened before the people of God. And we give unqualified acceptance to every syllable, to every word, to every chapter, to every page. Younger Christian, you can put the feet of your faith firmly upon the text of inspired Scripture. And just as we have a flawless Savior, we have a flawless textbook. And in their arrival here, both were marvelously superintended by an operation of the gracious Holy Spirit. I'll say just a little bit, very, very quickly, about some of the adjectives that can be employed I could find a Scripture, you could find a Scripture, very, very easily, of course, that tells me the Lord Jesus is holy. Many Scriptures. The Holy One, for example, of 1 John chapter 2. I could find a Scripture that could tell me that the Lord Jesus is righteous. He denied the holy and the just, or the righteous. Acts chapter 3. I can find a scripture. So could you, First John chapter three, that tells me that the Lord Jesus is pure. You can find a scripture that would tell me that the Lord Jesus is faithful, and true. The faithful and the true witness of Revelation chapter three, holy, faithful, true, righteous, pure. What? What sacred, meaningful epithets attach themselves to His great person. All of those adjectives very true. Of the, You could apply those adjectives to the Scriptures. When Paul is speaking about the Scriptures in Second Timothy chapter 3, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Psalm 119, all thy judgments are true from the beginning. They are righteous altogether. Proverbs chapter 30, every word of God is pure. So the very words that describe the Savior and give us us a character portrait are the same adjectives that are employed concerning the Scriptures. In fact, I, I read fairly recently... Of a, <clears throat> of a large publishing house, Christian publishing house, and they, uh, they had produced a very large consignment of Bibles. And they just called them Bible. Bible. And uh, someone was interviewing the CEO of the company, and he asked him, he said, up until now, he said, as far as I'm aware, on all your, on all your publication publications of holy scripture you did have the word holy bible but he said i noticed in this recent printing you have dropped the word holy and you just call it bible he said can i ask you why did you omit the word holy oh well at least the man was honest he said we wanted to give it a better market appeal of course the word holy doesn't have a good market appeal The word holy is not a popular concept in the world around us. If you speak about holiness in our secular, sensual society, the people will hardly know now what it means. In the cascading moral standards of our abysmal society, this is something altogether foreign. But dear Christians, listen. Listen this afternoon. Listen today, this morning. Those who are connected to a holy Saviour, And people like ourselves who read the Holy Scriptures, may God grant that those very same features will be reflected in our lives. You say, I I wonder about that. What really is the purpose of the Scriptures? To make me knowledgeable? Well, certainly if we read the Word of God, we will be knowledgeable. I would say the main purpose of Holy Scripture is to develop character. And as I meditate upon the Word of God as I ruminate, as I absorb, as I assimilate this book and its truth gets into my soul, it will develop in my life Christian, Christ-like character. It is holy. He is holy. I'll be holy. He is faithful. This book is faithful. Are you faithful? This book is true. He is true. Can my word be trusted? This book is pure. Christ is pure. Am I pure in all my relationships? That's the point. The Savior and the Scriptures. May God grant that we will learn to appreciate both of these in our Christian experience. You know that another feature, not only in their absoluteness, not only in their arrival here, not only in the adjectives that can be employed to describe each one. But I want to speak about the analogies that are employed. And I'll do that very quickly. I think I think I could maybe find I could maybe find a passage and maybe you could find a passage where the Lord Jesus is described as bread. Yes. You could think of one or two passages and it wouldn't strain your memory very much. I think I could find a passage, one or two passages, where the Lord Jesus is described as light. I could maybe also put my finger on a passage where the Lord Jesus is compared to water. A man shall be as an hiding place from the wind. As rivers of water in a dry place, as the shelter of a great rock in a weary land. Bread, light, and water, all describing, illustrating His glorious prayer. What about the Scripture? Would you ever? Would you ever be able to find a Scripture that would liken this book to bread? I think think maybe last night there was a brother quoted in a prayer meeting, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. This book, dear Christians, is manna to our souls. We can take Exodus chapter 16 and that manna that fell every day. We can look upon the manna as a picture of the Lord Jesus. With equal credibility, we can look upon that manna as a picture of the Holy Scriptures. And the Christian gathers a portion for every day. In its sweetness, in its sustenance, in its strength, in its sufficiency. Well, What do you feed on? Can I ask you about your internet habits? I was at a conference in Scotland some little time ago, and there was a brother touched upon this subject. We don't want to be touching upon it all the time. There are great uses in Internet. Google is a very useful device. uh, But he was touching upon some of the dangers. And he paused in his message. And he waited until the atmosphere was quiet. And he said this. And I'll repeat what he said. He repeated it. And I'll repeat it for him today. He said there's probably a brother somewhere in this congregation. And he said within the space of the last week. He has visited internet sites that he would be totally ashamed of if it were to be made public here today. Is there any brother here, and you have fed your soul, and you have allowed the image of corruption to be implanted upon your subliminal consciousness? And you have allowed your very spirit to be contaminated. Oh, dear Christians, there is no food so wholesome as this book. Said Jeremiah, what is the wheat to the chaff? The chaff of cyberspace. So many Christians with an addiction to the technopoly of the present day. The chaff of cyberspace and the wholesome wheat. Of divine revelation, I again say from the lips of Jeremiah, what is the wheat to the chaff? You spend 60 minutes absorbed in this book and spend 60 minutes cruising cyberspace, and when the 60 minutes of each are done, tell me what you have. The Lord Jesus described himself under the analogy of a corn of wheat. This book is wheat. The Lord Jesus is also seen as wheat. Light. He's the light of the world. Thank God for the light of Holy Scripture. Mind you, the world that we live in is a dark place. And I can say it would be darker still if we didn't have a Bible. If we were just left upon the ramblings of Grecian philosophy. If we were just left with the blurred image of Oriental mysticism. If we had just to listen to the skepticism of David Hume or to the eloquence of Voltaire, or to the bitter statements of Thomas Paine, or to the delusions of Darwinism and Darwinism, if that's all we had, dear believers, God help us. But thank God we have a book, and in that book is enshrined a lamp. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. It shows me exactly where I am, the ten inches in front of my feet and in front of my face. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. It not only gives me information about the immediate, it casts light upon the ultimate. It shows me the present. It shows me the future. May God grant that we'll walk in the light of His Word and enjoy fellowship with the Lord and that the transparency of the Savior and the transparency of the Scriptures will inform our lives. Water. Water to cleanse. Water to refresh. Water to invigorate. Thank God for the rich analogies that are employed in the description of this great volume. Of course, the Savior and the Scriptures are also joined together by many of their activity. I could find a verse, I'm sure you could find a verse, that would tell us that the Lord Jesus is life-giving. The second, man a quickening, a life-giving spirit. He has given us life that we never had before. When I go to Psalm 119, for example, the psalmist says, Thy word has quickened me. Not only is the Savior a quickening power and a quickening principle, but the Word of God has also life-giving properties. That word is quick. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Can I ask here at 10 to 12 this morning, is there any Christian and you're finding a deadness in your soul? Is there any Christian here and your spiritual life has begun to lack luster? You can remember days when you had more joy. You had more victory. You had more vitality. You had more vibrancy in spiritual things. But the dust and the drowsiness and the deadness of a spiritual stupor has settled upon your being. I find many Christians, and they are not anyway any way motivated about spiritual they come to the meeting. And they do it if they have to do it. But there's a great absence of zeal and vigor and spiritual energy. And there's a deadness. I would suggest, I'll give you a clue, dear Christian, that there's a deadness in your spirit, spiritual life. Probably. Probably. And we'll do a little bit of diagnosis. The reason is this. You have been neglecting this book. You attach yourself to the Scriptures. You will come after a weary day. A day in the cloisters. A day before the computer screen. A day in the office. A day with the family. And you spend a little while with this book and it will have a reviving effect upon your spirit. Quicken me according to thy word. There are brethren and sisters here and they could tell you numerous times a little promise from the Word of God, a little portrayal of the Savior as we have had already. It revives our spirits and it puts fresh energy into our muscles. The Savior quickens. The Scripture quickens. You know another another feature that joins them together. I'm thinking now of a verse that uh, tells me of the Lord Jesus. He's the great healer. With His stripes we are healed. He gave us healing. The wounds of sin had left their mark upon our souls, but thank God when we got a glimpse of Calvary, it brought healing to our broken hearts, and to our crushed spirits. There's a verse in Psalm 107, I think it is, it tells us, He sent His Word and healed them. So you say you get healing by the wounds of the Savior, but you also get healing by the wounds of Scripture. You know, let me tell you this. In spiritual life, you'll get wounded. We've been hearing about bitterness. We've been hearing about people who are disillusioned. We are hearing about people who have been misrepresented and slandered. You'll get wounded, dear Christian. And there's always the possibility that the wound can leave a scar. And many Christians have been so badly wounded that they carry a scar for the rest of their life. And they feel themselves to be injured. And they feel themselves to be victimized. And they have a bitterness and a grudge. You know what they need? They need to be healed. And if you get back to the Scriptures... Those wounds, those grudges, those hard feelings, those bitter thoughts, they can be dissolved and healed. The Savior heals, and the Scripture heals, and I'll not comment upon it, but you know, of course, the Lord Jesus is the Judge. All judgment committed to Him. And as far as this book is concerned, the Savior says, the word that I have spoken, it will judge you in the last day. This book, God's Son... And God's Scripture will be the benchmark for the judgment in that final assize. I'll say nothing more about it. Of course, the Savior and the Scriptures are similar in another sin. They both have been strongly attacked. They're hated. Liberalism modernism, postmodernism, higher criticism, all of those different isms and influences, and I won't mention any more, they absolutely and diametrically oppose the Lord Jesus. They cast aspersions upon His character. They raise questions about His work. They call to account His virgin birth. And Your Savior and mine is still vilified. So is this book. They banish it. They burn it. They blast it. They belittle it. They break it. They do everything. The natural man finds within his heart a resentment against Christ and an equal resentment against the Scriptures. Those were the very things that came with conversion. We found a love for Christ that we never had before. We love to hear Him well spoken of. We love to hear the Word of God being opened. And around us, the antagonism and the attacks are accumulating. The world is becoming increasingly bitter. I believe the day will soon arise when in any part of the world there will be such hostility against the sin. The point will be reached when the trumpet will have to sound. And the saints will be taken out of this world. They will be welcomed no further and no longer. May God grant that, despite all the hostility. In fact, I was reading the other day. Well, I used to love to hear these things when I was a young believer. <clears throat> I suppose you could say they strengthened my faith. I hardly need them now. I just accept the Bible. I have absolutely no problem with it. If the Bible says it, that's it, settled. Beyond the question, let the reason. You know, the Bible is not an unreasonable book. It's not illogical. That's why we can bring, we can bring the principles of interpretation, interpretation, historical, grammatical exegesis of Scripture. That's why we have Bible readings. We can take the text of Holy Scripture, compare part with part, piece with piece, word with this book. Is divine revelation, but it's not against human reason. And we don't just read the Bible to get a fuzzy feeling in our hearts. Christianity is not just a religion of the heart that bypasses the head. No, 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 no. My dear Christian friend, you're a human being. And when God made the human anatomy, He put the head above the heart, I think. And God expects this bit to be first. Use your head. And that will affect your heart. Some people come to a meeting, and if they don't get something that what do they call it turn it, turn you on, and they read a passage of the they say, what does that do to you? Turn you into a Christian maniac or something, or a Christian? Mystic. What does that do to you? What do you think of that passage? What is that duty? Do Doesn't matter what it does to me. The big thing is what is God saying in that passage. And if God is saying it, I come with my mind and I see what God is saying. And when I discover with my mind what He is saying, my heart will be melted, my heart will be moved, my heart will be motivated. But it's head, and then heart, and keep both together. And when I was a young believer, I used to love to hear about these discoveries of archaeology. That seemed to confirm some of the parts of the Bible. You know, recently, there's a fellow there in uh, Jeremiah 39, verse 3. You get a list of names Nerglisser. Have you heard of him before? And there's a fellow called Shamgar Nebo. And there's another fellow called Sarsakim. And they were all officers. In the civil service of Nebuchadnezzar II. And for many, many years, they said, There's no, we never found any record of a boy called Sarsakim. Who is Sarsakim? And they said, This was one of the inventions of Jeremiah. He had a bad dream, and he had too much for supper, and he wrote this name, Sarsakim, and the fellow got all mixed up, and it's just, and they, they nitpick. I tell you, I tell you, if they nit, well, they do not nitpick some of the other books of this world the way they do the Bible, if they were as severe in their criticism of these other so-called holy books as they are in the Bible, those books would have fallen to pieces years ago. And they were nitpicking. Who is this fellow? Sarsakim. Samgar hyphen Nebo And of course there was a fellow. They found, they found a whole lot of pieces of clay and they'd had them in the British Library from the late 1800s. And five or six years ago, 2007, there was a fellow who was looking at some of these little pieces of clay that had never been examined before. They'd been there for a hundred years. Just a small little piece about so big. And you'd hardly believe it. Written in cuneiform, they found the name of Sarsakim. Nebo Sarsakim. If you look at your Bible, it's Samgar Nebo, comma, Sarsakim. It should be Samgar, comma, Nebo Sarsakim. It should be a little bit changed. And what was just a small thing, just a small thing, this sarsakim little piece of clay, this piece of straka. I tell you all the attacks of the Bible, dear brethren, when the last hammer blow of critics have been brought to bear upon this book, it will stand unchipped and unchanged forever. Another way, just a better close, another way in which the Scriptures and the Savior not only both attacked, but both have been given alternative. Both have been substituted. As far as Christ is concerned, there are all kinds of alternatives. Gurus, teachers, saviors. Well, none of those alternatives appeal to us. There's something incomparable, distinguished, unique, absolute about this person. He's without a rival. He's without a peer. The peerless Christ. Thank God for such a Savior. No alternative will ever satisfy the deepest yearning of our souls. What about this book? There are plenty of alternatives. The Baghdad Vita. The Koran. The Book of Mormon. There are alternatives by the dozen. The holy books of the East. Despite all of the alternatives, this book stands with its singular, unassailable dignity. May God help us to read it. Read it with our eyes. Help us to retain it in our memories. Help us to reflect it in our lives. And I'll close just by mentioning another hymn writer, Fanny Crosby. You know that hymn. In fact, two famous hymns. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. That other hymn that we sing from time to time. Oh, wonderful, wonderful word of the Lord. True wisdom. Its pages record. Well, that was the dear lady. She had a wonderful Savior. She had wonderful Scriptures. She wrote poetry about them both. She loved them both. May God grant that both of them will be our guide. The cheer of our souls. Dear Christians, we can make it through. We don't need to be failures. We don't need to be flops. We don't need to miss the way. We don't need to wander through life and hardly know where we are going. I say, rejoice in the Savior. Rejoice in the Scriptures. And assisted by both, may God grant that our lives will count for His glory. May the Lord bless His Word.